I'm starting a series of podcasts about the period in the 15th century known as the Wars of the Roses. In this series, I shall draw on the many years of historical study and research which I've undertaken on this subject. In this first podcast, I'd simply like to give you a context and a framework for the subject and to get across a flavour of the period which I'll be looking at in more depth throughout the series. The obvious place to start would be to give you some dates. When did the wars start and end? But I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to explore what happened to England in the century before the 15th. Because if you want to understand an event of this scope, it's always as well to look at what came before. England in the second half of the 14th century was a society in flux, a people battered and bruised, a country struggling to come to terms with what had been hurled at it in the middle of the century, the Black Death. Now the Black Death was the greatest plague Europe had ever seen, and it had torn a gaping wound in the body of the English nation. The death struck at rich and poor alike, the low-born and the high-born. People died on an unimaginable scale. How could men and women ever make sense of their lives again after that? This disaster asked searching questions, not only of people's faith, but of their very place in the fabric of society. After the death, widespread famine followed. The economy was sent reeling and the ruling classes panicked, passing strict laws in a futile attempt to bolster up the creaking feudal system. As if this wasn't enough, the Hundred Years' War against France drained England's resources. War was expensive, harsh taxes were levied to pay for it, and in 1381 the peasants rose up in their thousands in an unprecedented revolt against the hated poll tax, a tax on everyone in England. This peasants' revolt threatened to shake the crown from the very head of young Richard II. He survived it, but by the turn of the century, England was in turmoil. There was faction, usurpation and rebellion. And when the dust finally settled on the bloody battlefield of Shrewsbury in 1403, the House of Lancaster was left in control of England in the person of Henry IV. What would happen next? The nation held its breath, but at first it seemed that stability had been restored. Henry IV passed on the throne to his son, who would be the young warrior king Henry V of Agincourt fame. He achieved the seemingly impossible by reviving English fortunes in the war with France, cutting a swathe through French lands and finally imposing a treaty by which he expected sooner or later to become King of France. English pride had been given a mighty boost. And at home, on the lower rungs of the social ladder, life was beginning to present a few opportunities that had rarely been possible before the Black Death. Now, a simple labourer might work for wages, and if he earned enough, he might become a tenant farmer, and then, who knows, he might sell produce for a small profit. He might not have any political voice, but he might just be able to improve his lot in life. But on the national stage, 
the optimism was short-lived. For when Henry V died young in 1422, he left a male heir barely nine months old. For the next 65 years, England was dominated by increasingly powerful nobles and the factions they gathered about them. In that period, the problems of government mounted. The French war started to go badly. The rule of law at home gradually broke down and a fragile king and his disgruntled nobles were obliged to settle their differences on the battlefield. I remember that the 15th century used to be referred to as the decline of the Middle Ages, as if society stood still or stagnated, as if progress was somehow stalled whilst the land was ravaged by conflict until rescued by the arrival of the Renaissance. This, of course, was a load of tosh. The 15th century was a time of both chaos and opportunity. England was not in decline. Many towns grew, trade flourished, and thus the business of government became more complex. Too complex by far for a king to control it any longer by the sheer force of his personality, especially if, like Henry VI, he didn't have very much personality to start with. So, now we must take a brief look at the leading players in what became the original Game of Thrones. My first taste of these personalities was, I suspect, like quite a few other folk, through the history plays of William Shakespeare. But although the plays introduced me to some of what we might call the Hollywood stars of the period, they remained pretty shadowy figures until I began to undertake a bit of research for myself. What I learned in the course of that research is that studying the politics of 15th century England is not for the faint-hearted. There was an absolute feast of riveting personalities, savage battles, sudden switches of allegiance, violent feuds, the murder of innocents and not-so-innocents, and Lord knows what other mayhem. You could find yourself up to your elbows in blood and gore. Strangely, at the centre of all this catastrophic carnage was a vacuum, a weak king. Henry VI was a man with all the charisma of a sponge and the good sense of a lemming. Around him clustered the main players of the political game, the purveyors of power and intrigue. These were the leading members of the great noble houses of England, York, Lancaster, Beaufort, Neville, Percy and so on. These prominent men and women existed against a colourful tapestry of ambition, betrayal and violence. Such twists and turns you couldn't read about it. Except, of course, you can because the dodgy characters and double crosses are perfect territory for historical novelists like me. The name of the Wars of the Roses, coined several centuries after the events, suggests a period of constant war. But as some historians have been at pains to point out, the fighting was far from continuous. But whilst it might have been sporadic, it was also pretty explosive, and some of the early battles had far-reaching consequences. In the first Battle of St Albans in 1455, for example, 
the deaths of several key noblemen created personal feuds that would continue for at least another generation as sons vowed to avenge their fathers. So battles sometimes killed off the leaders of one generation of combatants only to clear the way for their sons to ratchet up the competition a notch or two. What drama! The battles themselves have also attracted a lot of interest because they were frequently quite bloody. The way men fought had evolved by the mid-15th century into a blood-and-guts contest. Two opposing ranks of well-armoured men-at-arms wielding heavy swords, axes and maces on foot. They would hack away at each other until physical or metal fatigue decided the outcome. Archers were still a lethal ingredient, and to add an extra bit of spice, there was the first use of handguns and cannons. These new weapons could be dangerous both to the victim and the user, but they were there to stay. It was not simply the means of warfare which led to so many casualties. It was also the mindset of the participants and their battlefield commanders. In an effort to finish their epic struggle, the cry of no quarter was heard on a number of fields, notably the bloodiest battle of Towton in 1461. Bringing even more chaos to the battlefield was the glorious English weather which managed to extract a few startled rabbits from hats. For example, before Mortimer's Cross, fought on a cold February morning in 1461, there was a remarkable parhelion, or a vision of three suns, formed by a combination of the dawn light and ice crystals in the air. That doesn't happen every day. The decisive Battle of Towton began in a snow blizzard, and at Barnet they were fighting in a fog so dense they could not tell friend from foe. Since the latter two battles were pivotal to the outcome of the Wars of the Roses, it is interesting that in both the weather played a significant role. In recent years, much more has also been written about some of the period's more prominent women, not only in historical fiction, but also in the focus of historians themselves. We now know a little more about these women and the part they played in the politics of the period. And the more we know, the more we realise how much we don't know. Possibly the most dramatic phase of the wars kicked off after the untimely death of Edward IV in 1483, leaving two young male heirs. This provoked a power struggle between the dead king's brother, Richard Duke of Gloucester, and the family of the Queen, the Woodvilles. In that struggle, Richard has forever been cast as the villain, but for generations the charge has been disputed. Did he kill his nephews? Did he kill his wife? Did he kill his brother, Clarence? Did he kill anyone at all? Is there anyone he didn't kill? Perhaps he was just an earnest plodder, who was a bit unlucky. But either way, it has always seemed to me that if he was a villain, then he was really not very good at it. You would think that after over 500 years, the world would have had its fill of Richard III. But no, excavate a car park and up he popped, and the controversy was refuelled. 
People are immediately drawn to the man, and the public interest seems unlikely to wane any time soon. This fascination with interesting people and what they did in difficult circumstances is timeless. Indeed, The Wars of the Roses as a whole seems such a great soap opera. At each stage in the drama, just when it appears that peace has been secured, another crisis came along. And all the old rivalries, as well as a few new ones, rose to the surface. By the time Henry Tudor became king at the end of it all, most of his potential rivals had gone. But he was still not safe because although all the real male heirs appeared to be dead, a few impostors turned up. Or were they impostors? So, The Wars of the Roses is one of the great stories of English history. Next time, we'll start to have a closer look at how this story played out.